Welcome to the Rise Network podcast show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Welcome to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host Mayu and Austin Ye, who is currently in Italy. I'm sure up to some crazy stuff out there. We'll keep today's preamble pretty short. We actually have a really cool guest. I think a lot of you guys are going to enjoy. But overall, if you guys are following the Canadian real estate market, I'll just do a kind of quick two minute update based on what I'm seeing and hearing from different people. The current market is an interesting one. I've, I've spoken with realtors in value add cities. So you think. Sudbury, Windsor, Cornwall, areas like that, right? Four hours out. It seems a lot of the current slowdown in those markets are investor-oriented properties. So think duplexes, triplexes minimum, and just kind of keep going up from there. And it seems a lot of the single family house type houses that sell to ultimately usually first-time home buyers or end users, those are still moving at pretty favorable prices. So if anyone has any single family houses, but not a bad time to offload them assuming they're in decent condition and, and good condition. But a lot of the duplex, triplex and, and larger properties, those seem to be sitting a little bit longer. You can still go conditional. Nothing's really changing on that end. I also follow Toronto quite a bit and some pockets here as well. And it seems here supply is taking quite a big drop. It is like if you go online and you start reading a lot of threads and stuff like that, every realtor is going to kind of say August market, always a decrease in supply and, and blah, blah, blah. Right. But ultimately, it seems like a lot of sellers are just choosing not to list their property in the current environment with the hopes that interest rates will stop going up and therefore the market will recover going into next year. And that leads us into one of the more interesting global news headlines that has been shared across everyone's Instagram account, which I just refuse to share. It seems like almost no one subscribes to global news. But if you go on Reddit, you can actually just read the main parts of that article. Someone nice enough essentially just copied and pasted the article in there for us. Basically, the forecast. I think it was a CIBC uh, strategist, if I'm not mistaken, and then another research slash think organization. Um, they basically published this report that says, it seems like we're going to be at the end of interest rate hikes after the September hikes. No one's doubting that there's going to be a September hike at this point. Everyone's kind of confirming it. What the speculation is on is whether it's a 0.5, a 0.75, or a 1%, right? But they still kind of all agree that there is going to be a hike. The forecast is more so what happens after that. So I think the next hikes after that would be November and December, if I'm not mistaken. And a lot of indicators start to kind of indicate that they probably will not be doing that hike. I think, I don't know, my personal forecast is all over the place, uh, depending on what I hear in the news in that day. But I think as overall, as investors, you got to think year over year, inflation will start going down as a result of the way the metric is calculated, right? Year over year. And if we had 8% this year, we're kind of plateauing on inflation, then the interest rate hikes aren't really as necessary. And there's even rumors that we might be headed into a deflationary environment, which will definitely be interesting as well, right? So as investors, obviously formulate your own opinion. I think right now there's, there's obviously good opportunity on the market to get in, depending on your personal cash situation, how many partners you have, et cetera, that are kind of backing you as well. And ultimately what your risk tolerance is, right? So if you're someone that has a little bit of real estate that doesn't necessarily need to buy, nothing wrong with not buying. If you're someone that has a decent amount of capital and can kind of keep averaging in for the next one year, maybe where if you buy properties today, buy another one in six months, buy another one in six months after that. And you're not necessarily dependent on full burrs to keep going, meaning you're not using private money or something like that. Not a bad environment for sure to be kind of building up your asset profile, right? So with that being said, actually, that takes me into our guest for today's podcast. We have Luke Boyren. Luke is a super inspirational individual for myself. Austin, I know for sure. 
as he was building out his wholesaling business, he said to me multiple times, he's looked up to Luke and what Luke's been able to do for his wholesaling business. Luke started off as an investor, like a lot of us. He actually went down the law school route. He became a lawyer, if I'm not mistaken. I'm not sure if he practiced fully, but he became a lawyer. And then he ended up getting into the real estate investing space uh, with a couple of partners. Some of those earlier on properties, he's definitely sold off. But he started off as an investor, went full-fledged into the wholesaling business. He's built one of the biggest wholesaling, probably the biggest wholesaling business in Canada. Definitely focuses on Ontario and a couple other provinces as well. So if you guys aren't on his wholesaling list, you can also skip ahead to the end of the podcast where he, he lets you guys know how to get on that wholesaling list. But definitely check out the podcast. So after building up that wholesaling business, he then went and started acquiring more and more real estate. We talked about his current investing strategy and how he's growing out that business as well. Just given that real estate is not as cash flow heavy of a business as wholesaling is. So definitely a great episode, a lot of good nuggets. Me and Austin, as always, we use this as an opportunity to kind of inquire and pick our guest brain about how we can grow our own businesses as well, right? So definitely a really good one. If you guys enjoy the podcast, make sure you like, comment, share, and subscribe to the podcast. Thanks, everyone, and see you guys soon. Hello, everyone. We are joined with our very special guest. It's about time that we have you on. We have Luke Borian. Luke, how's everything going, man? I'm great. I'm sure you say that about all the guests. <laughs> he actually does. He actually does. <laughs> it does lose its... Uh, I add that but... little sentence after. Yeah, that yeah was long that time. Was so that this one was special, a little bit different. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Luke, so myself and Austin, we've uh, obviously followed your journey as much as possible. Uh, but for any of our guests that might not know you or your company and what you do as a whole, why don't you uh, just give everyone kind of a quick background? Yeah. Well, so what we do now is my wife and I own a rental property business. So we own uh, a about 100 units once we complete the ones we're working on across Ontario. We're in a few different markets across Ontario. And on the other side, we have a wholesaling business where we buy about... Uh, last year, we bought 260-something houses, bought and assigned 260-something houses. And that's across Canada. We're in Vancouver. We're in British Columbia, Quebec, and Ontario. Yeah. You want the background where I started or... Yeah, for sure. I think usually when when we bring on a guest and, and you guys have accomplished so much, the, the big question is, you know, how did you just get started? What brought you into this industry? And then I guess the early stages of how you started to scale up. Yeah, I, I grew up surrounded by real estate. My dad was a commercial real estate agent. My oldest brother's a real estate agent. And so I grew up, I always wanted to, to get into real estate. Actually, I wanted to be an agent when I was growing up. <laughs> um, and ended up buying my first rental property when I was 18. I just, I'd finished high school early. I spent two years in China teaching English. I saved up some money, came back to Canada. And I uh, bought my first house at Jane and Finch in Toronto and turned it into a rooming house. <laughs> 10 bedrooms at Jane and Finch was an adventure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I owned that through through my undergrad, which I, I did a, a business degree at Schulich. And then I sold that right when I was starting a joint law degree and MBA at uh, Osgoode and Schulich uh, at York University. And I had the worst reason to go to law school ever, which was I understood how hard it was to get financing for properties because I thought you had to go I didn't know anyone who did real estate as a full-time job, just as an investor. And so I thought you had to go get a good job that banks would lend you money on. And then you could go buy properties to help with your retirement. So I thought I'd have to go work a traditional career and buy some rental properties on the side. And that would be my life. So I went to law school because I figured lawyers could borrow a lot of money, get a lot of mortgages. That was my reasoning to go to law school, which is a terrible reason to become a lawyer. So during law school, I bought another property up in Aurelia with two friends, partners. Uh, we duplexed it back when the numbers worked a little better. 
paid 219 for the house and it was about a 55k reno so we're in at 275 and we were getting i think 2720 combined in rent nice. um on that place which is now worth like 750 or something that house <laughs> um that was probably 2012 2013 maybe that we bought that you still have it no my two friends who bought it with me though i sold my share to them years ago okay. before it went up a ton in value <laughs> um and they uh it done well it was it was a pain because we had to go to we got denied for the committee of adjustment because we needed a minor variance for to build a duplex because the lot width wasn't wide enough and we had to go to the ontario municipal board mm. to fight it and we mm. got approved so that was an adventure yeah and then i just you know i bought another townhouse close to york and then bought another one with my friend this was in school and then graduated did my articling got called to the bar and as soon as i got called to the bar i quit and started flipping houses full time and that's when I started flipping. I did about, I think, 17 flips in the first year. And then I started doing the next year flips, wholesaled a few. And then I moved more and more to wholesaling and picking up rentals and a few Airbnbs and, uh, and scaled it up. And now we've bought about, uh, I think I've bought about 650 houses to date. Jeez. Okay. Yeah. I had no idea there was that many. <laughs> um, okay. So, so when did you start flipping? What year was that? Uh, 2016. 2016. Got it. Okay. So 2017, I'm assuming where did you feel like you were impacted with the cool down in the market and all that? And how did that impact your overall business? Cause that's Absolutely. probably very applicable to the current ish circumstances that we're in. Yeah. And, and, and for context too, uh, the first rental I bought was in 2007. So it was a slow, long process where I was in school, couldn't really buy much. So it took me, you know, right. nine years to get into it full time, but yeah, 2000, 2017, uh, I was a little too cocky. I thought the market, I, I saw the government announce this plan, right? And I thought, this isn't a big deal. I, I read the rules. Oh, it's foreign buyers tax. Oh, that's just honestly people being racist. They see Asian looking people at an open house. They go, oh my God, they're all foreign buyers. Meanwhile, they're all permanent residents or Canadian citizens, right? <laughs> they just think that they're foreign buyers. So yeah. I'm like this. And then not to mention, if you're a permanent resident, if you're on a student visa, all those rules didn't apply to you, the foreign buyers tax at the time. So I didn't think a lot of those changes were that material. And I thought, eh, this will be a temporary blip in the market. Hey, I can get a good price and we buy in now. What I didn't count on was just how much the actual, how much, how material the rules are doesn't actually matter as much as it's what people's perception is. And that's what I didn't count on. So I bought a couple of deals at a bad time. I probably broke even on a few flips, but I was buying too aggressively. It was similar to recently. It was too hard to get deals. So once I could get deals, I started picking them up quickly and I ended up losing on one deal, $90,000 on one flip. That was a painful mistake. Um, But I guess overall, if the portfolio during that period was still positive, right? Like you were still kind of like making money and and so that $90,000 loss was kind of swallowed by a couple of profits. Yeah. And and I mean, even the year before I, I probably, or the flips I sold, like right before it went down, were, you know, right. I did really good. I think I sold two flips right when the market was changing and made 80 grand each, you know, so, mm-hmm. and I did another one that I made a hundred thousand on right then. So the market was going up like crazy, which helped a lot overall for the year. I made money, but it was, there's was probably an eight month period that was just painful. And I was a little bit uh, shell shocked and a little more cautious after that. Yeah, I find when you're flipping a ton of properties, one, obviously there's, there's a bit of the risk that you expose yourself into. Two is, is that Sometimes you do have those sleepless nights because everyone knows who's who's flipped properties that nothing ever goes perfect. And when you have multiple projects that uh, are struggling to get to the finish line, it could definitely have a toll on your mental stability. I've been there before, so I I totally get it. 
just out of curiosity, with those 17 properties that you purchased initially, were they off market? Were they on market? Did you start getting into wholesaling then or was it like strictly flipping? It was a mix. My first year was a mix of um, private and on market. I was getting deals on the MLS. Like I remember one deal that I bought. It was one of my first when I was flipping full time. It was Thanksgiving weekend and it was in Brampton and uh, it was a, it was a semi on center, center street, center Avenue. And it was listed by an out of town agent, but it was listed on the Friday before the long weekend. And it didn't get cross listed to Treb before the weekend. Like I guess they tried to, it didn't make it before the the long weekend started. And so it was only visible on the public MLS because I asked my agent, Hey, can you send me more info on this one? They're like, Oh, it's not showing up on Treb yet. Like perfect. So nobody is getting alerts on this till Tuesday. I just saw it on realtor.ca. Let me jump on this. And I had it under contract on Monday of the long weekend before it got pushed out on the Tuesday. And yeah, I easily got it well below market there. And that was uh, just a full cosmetic flip. And I think I made about 80,000 on that one. And then another one I bought right after that on the MLS was, uh, it was set up as a, a three bedroom in an area where four bedrooms sold for more, but the MPAC showed it as a four bedroom because they'd taken down a wall to make one of the bedrooms bigger. I'm like, oh, one of the easiest things I can do here is just put this wall back up. And now the properties that I can see in this area, the four bedrooms are selling for $30,000, $40,000 more. And I won that one in, an, in a bidding war on the MLS, six offers. I won, flipped it, sold it, made 80 grand. <laughs> so those were MLS deals starting out, but I was also trying to buy privately. And I had some realtors send me some kind of deals where they were worried about, you know, where they kind of had the chance to, but I kind of pitched them, hey, let me make an offer to your client. You'll double end it and they don't have to have people walking through. They don't have to prep it for sale, any of this. So, you know, had a house that was covered in cat feces in Scarborough and that kind of stuff. So mm. um, mm-hmm. MLS deals, realtor deals, and then a little bit of, of marketing for private deals myself as well. Mm-hmm. Nice. And how did you get into the wholesaling world? Where I'm going is I feel like wholesaling was not a commonly discussed strategy. Take it back to like 2017. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it wasn't. I just didn't know. I was in my own little bubble, right? But how did you get into that world? And how did you start growing out that business? Because I guess for our listeners that don't know, you're definitely one of the largest, if not the largest, I have no idea what the stats are and stuff like that, but definitely one of the most predominant wholesalers in, I guess, all of Canada as well, right? So I'm just curious how you scaled up that business. I know you have multiple people on your team, right? So like, what was that journey like as well? And then I guess an add-on question is that, did you slow down or stop the flipping for the wholesaling or how did you kind of, or did you grow two businesses simultaneously? I think we are the largest in Canada in terms of wholesaling. Correct me if I'm wrong otherwise. <laughs> I haven't met anyone doing more, at least more volume or, or more dollar volume. How did I get into the wholesaling? So part of it was when I was flipping, I had an equity partner. So they were putting up the capital for all of the deals. And by capital, I mean, they were putting the down payment and rental money. And I was getting a private mortgage on each of these deals. So expensive financing. And at the time, more expensive than even I'm paying now because I didn't have kind of the contacts and even some, some new lenders have come into the market at better prices. So, you know, I was lucky to get 10 and three in terms of rates and stuff like that. I can get better than that now. Let's say sometimes I was paying, you know, eight and four and yeah, 12 and two, but it was on and the expensive side. It's, it's still not cheap, but private money was expensive. And then I had an equity partner. So I was giving them half the profits on the flips because they were putting up the capital. And I was happy to do that because that's what helped me build up volume, right? I wouldn't have been able to do volume on my own. I did a few flips on my own at the time, but I didn't have the cash to do enough. 
and yes, I understand you can, you have programs, you know, like some lenders will let you do 20 K down and stuff like that, but then you end up then taking you... on so much more risk because mm-hmm. of the interest cost still. Yeah. So I was marketing on my own, the stuff I bought off the MLS, I don't think I had a choice, but to flip because most buyers from a wholesale list, they're, they're not interested in something that you've bought off the MLS. They say, Oh, well, I could have just bought that off the MLS myself. It's, it's very rare that we send something out that was bought on the MLS. And even then it needs to have a good story, a good explanation of why we think it still makes sense to send out as a wholesale deal. Like, Hey, this was listed for 400,000. I bought it for 200,000 on the MLS. Okay. Maybe there's a deal there. Right. Or I bought it the day it was listed and they severely underpriced it. That can make sense too. Right. So when I started buying privately, which was at, at first, it was just, I think it was Google ads express on my phone. I was just doing the, the keywords there. That's how I started off. But my first wholesale deal was I had seven renos on the go at the same time that I was managing. I was doing everything on my own, self-managing these seven renos. And I got a call from someone who saw one of my ads and she was asking a very reasonable price, but I'm, I can't handle another reno right now. And um, I, I was talking to my wife about it. She's like, ah, go see it. You know, you'll figure it out if it's a good deal. I went to see it. It was a good deal. I talked to the seller. They didn't need a fast close. So I, I planned a, a long closing for it. I think I had like a four month close. I'm like, okay, I can get out of some of my other renos and then I can buy this. So I put it under contract and that was a Friday night. And my wife went out with her friends. It's Friday night, 10 a.m. And I start Googling. I'm like, wow, where do my ads show up on Google? So I start Googling and I see some competitors I hadn't seen their names before. And I call one of them up 10 p.m. on a Friday night. I say, hey, who is this? And we start chatting. <laughs> and I go, hey, I just got a deal out in, uh, in Mississauga. Are you interested? And he said, yeah, I would be. So next week he comes out and sees it. And I end up assigning him for more than I would have made flipping it, especially more than my half would have been. Uh, but uh, what I found interesting was he had all these ways he was going to save money on it compared to me. So I was going to use private funds to buy this house. He was going to use a line of credit on his primary. So his rate was going to be like 3%. My rate was going to be, you know, mm-hmm. 10% plus fees. <laughs> also, he's a realtor. So he was going to list it himself on the back end and only have to pay at the co-op side. Also, him and his dad are pretty hands-on on the construction side. So instead of paying kind of more general contractor they were going to be, you know, sourcing materials, bringing it on site, keeping all that money. So I ended up making a good assignment fee. And I know him, he ended up making $110,000 on the flip after he paid me. So he had all these ways to save money over me. Meanwhile, basically the difference would have, I flipped, I would have flipped it and I would have paid a realtor. I would have paid a lender, I would have paid a broker. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I would have paid uh, more to the contractors and all of that. And I would have made as much money as I would made on the wholesale deal. That's wow. Okay. So there's investors who have, ways to make more money than I do on these. Why don't I concentrate on buying them deep as I do? And I find people who can save money in other ways so they can still make a good profit on the flips. And that's what I started doing. Awesome. And where are you right now, just for context with your wholesaling business? How many employees? And you're saying that you operate in all of these provinces as well. What's your deal volume like? Not It doesn't have to be dollar amounts, but the number of deals, all of those high level details. Yeah. Like I said, we did about 260 deals last year. We're probably on track to do right around that this year. Things are a little slower right now. So we'll probably hit around that 250 mark. We have in the low 40 something employees on our team. So let's talk about that scaling process of uh, yeah. getting to 40 employees. People doing like one or two transactions on the wholesale side per like month. And they're very comfortable with that from zero to 250. I'm sure you didn't hire 40 people right off the get go, right? So like, I'm curious what the stages were. Like, is it like once you hit like 50 deals a year, you need to have like one or two staff. Are there kind of like rules of thumbs that you've kind of developed along the way 
How do you view scaling up a wholesaling business? The way I saw it was uh, looking at what the bottlenecks were. Also, early on, I found it important to hire somebody for a specific role or one or two specific roles rather than two general. Because I tried doing that early on, kind of hiring an assistant who could help me with a little bit of everything and it didn't work out. (laughs) And I tried that a few times and it didn't work out. I still don't have an assistant. (laughs) But what I did find worked was bringing someone on the team who would have one specific job at a time. And so that's why we have it broken up. We have acquisitions, we have dispositions, we have lead intake, we have transaction coordination, our accounting team, et cetera, et cetera. So each of these people are specialized in their role and they can become very good at it. I think we have very, very good people on our team who are excellent at what they do because they specialize in their role and they can become the best at it. When I was doing everything, I was doing lead intake. So I'm driving and I'm taking a phone call and I'm writing down someone's details on a McDonald's napkin in the car on the side of the road, that's not a good experience for them. And that's not good for me to follow up. That's not good for me to any of that. Whereas if that is what all that someone is doing, they're ready. They're at their computer. They have multiple monitors. They can pull up the property as they're talking. They can be ready to go and give the best experience to the seller and also have the best chance of setting that appointment or or buying that property. So that was part of it. Now, in terms of scaling up, it was kind of proving the model to myself when I was doing it on my own. And believing that I had a model that worked. And like you said, nobody was, there was a few wholesalers, a few people who wholesaled a few deals here and there, but nobody was wholesaling at volume in Canada. And I mean, all kinds of limiting beliefs, because I believed in myself when I started that you couldn't get good deals in Canada, that everyone sold on the MLS, all this stuff. So I wasn't the only one, but everyone would tell me, oh, no, that wouldn't work in Canada. And then we've kind of shown that it does work in Canada. Mm-hmm. When I started wholesaling, People used to not want to sign up on my buyer's list because they'd been on people's buyer's lists. Somebody had taken an American course, some rich dad program or something, trying to wholesale, and they'd go buy something on the MLS for 10K off and then ask a 10K assignment fee. <laughs> so you're asking MLS value. Why are you, why would I buy this off of you? And a lot of people early on didn't even want to get on buyer's list because they thought it was a waste of time because they'd been on a wholesaler's buyer's list and nothing good had come of it. And so I think we've shown that that there can be good deals out there. But yeah, it it took a while for me to even believe it. So yeah. And then on the scaling up side, hiring people for one thing at a time and then bringing in kind of a sales manager to grow our sales team, who then I was able to bring in someone who had a ton of experience with hiring and training. And so they helped with the hiring and training. And so we've been able to build up a team like that. And we have our HR person who now helps make sure we have good training manuals. Everyone who comes in gets better experience, gets company swag when they when they join, and then they they get better training than we used to have for sure. And because uh, mm. yeah, that's valuable. Bringing in really good people is, is a very important part of our business. Mm-hmm. And speaking about bringing really good people, how has your hiring process evolved when you first started hiring people to what it is now? Because it sounds like Michael Scott from The Office, but a company is really all about the people, right? And them believing in your vision, especially in a startup or like a smaller scale company, like a non-large corporate company them believing in your vision, fitting in with your culture. So what are you doing differently on the hiring side now? Yeah. So uh, like I said, my COO does a lot of the hiring stuff. I, for a long time, would just be on the final interview to kind of get the yes or the no. It's a very conversational interview. It's trying to make sure it's someone, for example, who owns up to past mistakes they've made. That fits in well into our culture of ownership. And someone who seems like they'd be fun to get along with. So there's a lot of joking, you know, if someone seems a little too tight laced, we might even swear in an interview. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, <laughs> just to kind of see their reaction, <laughs> see if they're, you know, they're going to fit in with, with, you know, we try to have a more fun culture in our office, but 
we make it very clear early on that we're not looking for someone to handhold because if we need to manage you, we don't need you. We need people who can act independently. Our company's been remote pre-COVID. Uh, we have an office in Toronto, but that's it. Everyone else works remotely. And you know, we don't have many people of our company going into the office. Almost everyone's kind of across Canada. Uh, you know, for example, we have our French speaking team because since we work in Quebec, we need French speaking lead intake. So they are based out of Montreal. We have for our BC side, we have people who are based on that coast, both Calgary and, and BC and LA <laughs> to um to take calls for us because it's a little easier with the time zone and the people who are local in BC understand the areas better. So yeah, but just making sure someone fits into the culture and definitely the early on, it was more just trying to find somebody, a body to fill a seat. And now it's really important to find the right person. We're not taking chances on people in the same way. And it's also become a little bit easier because there's also more confidence behind, um, you know, I don't like lying to people. <laughs> I, I wouldn't like to say, oh yeah, don't worry. You're going to make a ton of money here. Cause you know, especially in a commission role when we don't know that, but what we can say now is you are in this market. We have somebody else in this comparable size market. This is the numbers they bring in. Your market is better in this way or worse in this way. This is what we're expecting you to do. Um, so if you don't do well, you'll still make more than your last job. If you do what we expect, you're going to do very well. And if you exceed what we expect, you're going to make more money than you ever dreamed of. So, But those are more realistic expectations we can put on it because we can show the track record of what's doable in those markets. So. Interesting. Okay. As you were scaling up your wholesaling business, did you just continue to to run the flipping business and the wholesaling business? And did you continue to you now flip in Quebec and in BC as well? Or are those purely like wholesaling channels? Like how did those two businesses grow simultaneously? And then I'm leading up into ultimately out your investing portfolio as well, which I'm curious about. So we handed off a lot of the... Um, so when I was hiring for specific roles, I was handing off part of the tasks. But that meant that I had to take on a higher volume of the rest of the hats, right? So uh, I had somebody doing lead intake and acquisitions, which meant that I was doing marketing, dispositions, managing contractors, accounting, everything else. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and scaling that meant I had to do more and more of that. So I was able to hand off parts of the job while managing people. And then I still had heavier and heavier hats for the other roles. What that meant was I just couldn't keep up with the renovation demands. Managing contractors was too much of my time. And in all of our markets, we don't have people to project manage at high volumes of flips. So we still do buy properties even now. We just bought one off of another wholesaler a couple of weeks ago. We'll still buy good deals off of other wholesalers. And I think there's opportunities right now because some people have been missing out on even... We see it on our deals and we're like, oh, if we don't get this price, we'll just take it down ourselves because this is a deal and we believe in it. You know, When I told you I, I lost 90 grand in 2017, that didn't turn me off from buying and flipping properties. It just taught me some lessons. And one of which was speed. Because one of the biggest problems I had there was I had contractor issues, which led to delays, but it was partially on my fault too. And I owned that property way too long in a falling market and overpaid for construction work. All of those things compounded while paying private money. If I had gotten out of that much faster or as fast as I had planned, I probably would have at least broken even on that deal. But a lot of things compounded to make it worse. So now we've learned lessons from that. So we do flips, but we mainly do pretty light flips. What we found is obviously the MLS is still the best buyers list. If we can get stuff out on the MLS, we'll still do it. And we still are. When people are missing out on other wholesalers deals, we'll buy them right now. That's what we're looking to do. We're constantly looking at other wholesalers deals. So, so flipping kind of slowed down. We was flipping concurrently while wholesaling. And we still flip in all of our markets. We'll still pick up some properties. Often they're more of a wholesales where we'll just kind of clean them up and relist them. Uh, on the MLS. So we call that a wholesale because it's a wholesale to the retail market. 
basically because we're selling it on the MLS. So, you know, we'll take a hoarder house, we'll clean it out, we'll empty it out, we'll clean it, we'll paint it, we'll put it on the MLS for somebody else to finish the rest of the work if it needs it. And then if there's specific things like the house looks pretty nice, but just the kitchen's bad, okay, we'll just do the kitchen. But we're not looking to do entire house full cosmetic renos like we used to. And we do that. We've done it in Quebec. We've done it in BC and we do them in Ontario regularly. We do have a construction team in uh, specifically in the Ottawa area because a lot of our rentals are, are in Ottawa and surrounding areas. So we have a construction manager and who, who manages our projects out here. And so we can handle a little bit bigger stuff out in the Ottawa area. Did you feel like expanding to other provinces was a natural rate of progression? Like, do you feel like you guys are kind of we're already, I don't know, let's just say covering most of like Ontario or the markets that you want to cover in Ontario and going out of province was a natural progression. And then I guess following that, because you're probably the only wholesaler I know that that covers like other provinces. Uh, I'm curious what that process is like. like. How do you scale up a team in Quebec where like you don't maybe have as big a, or any of a footprint at that point, right? What what led you guys to go out of province? And then how did you go out of province? Yeah, yeah. Natural progression. Um, Yeah, it was more we figured we could quickly pick up the low hanging fruits where we had less competition. And so that was going into new markets where there just wasn't the, the same level of competition for us. And so that was going up to first Ottawa and then Quebec and then BC. We're usually registered in Ontario. So we're, you have to register interprovincially. We have to understand their laws. We have to use different APSs. It's surprising neither market has as much of a standard APS as Ontario does, Agreement of Purchase and Sale, which is the standard ARIA one in Ontario that most people use. And that's what you know their lawyers expect to see. That's what sellers expect to see in the other provinces. There's certain types of APSs they might expect, but they don't expect them to be the same. They're not identical. You're not using the exact same type form as everyone else is with just different clauses. So you kind of have to work with a lawyer, drop your own version of the contract. Same thing for assignments. You have to really work around the laws to make sure you're not breaking any rules. I think it's important that we actually close on properties ourselves because something new wholesalers might be making a mistake on is you never want to be considered brokering a deal and you never want to be buying a property with no ability to close on it. So the fact that we buy properties, we close on them, we renovate them, we sell them, we keep them as rentals, et cetera, that makes our marketing where we're looking to buy houses much more genuine because we actually have the ability and often the willingness to close on these properties if we need to or if we can. Whereas if somebody else is doing it, we actually bought a deal off a wholesaler once who basically said, oh, just uh, you just sign the contract directly with the seller and then send us a check when you're done. Now, thanks that they trusted us. But they brokered that deal and they got a broker fee. I'm not going to say who it was, but we're very careful to never broker a deal. We're not brokers. We're only acting in our own interest as, as the, the principal in our deal. So we're, we're never representing anybody else. We're representing ourselves. So we buy a deal off of a seller. It's between us and the seller. And then we sell our property to a buyer. It's between us and the buyer. We're never representing somebody else. And that's a key part of our business that we're very careful of. The laws in the different provinces can really make it more complicated. Actually, both Quebec and BC close deals through notaries, not through lawyers, which is a little bit different. Quebec's process is a lot more different because time is not of the essence as it is in Ontario contracts. So sometimes they just don't feel like closing that day. And they're like, eh, I'm busy. The notary's like, I'll just close it in two weeks instead. It's very different than you would wow. never see that in Ontario. There's a lot of differences like that, that we have to work through. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And was there kind of pain points when expanding to these provinces initially that were things smooth sailing once you hit these provinces immediately or was it a bit of a learning curve a bit of losses and then a profit after that definitely learning curve quebec was the harder one i would say of the two but both of them had a big learning curve vancouver's a very hard market because we think prices are high in the gta but they're very high out there and so you don't have the same level of investors 
because the cash flow doesn't make sense. So you don't have the cash flow investors out there, which are often some of your best buyers. So it gets trickier to wholesale out there. There's, I would say, fewer qualified buyers, not to mention it's a smaller market. We take for granted just how many buyers there are in the GTA and how many people there are looking to buy your deals. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas you don't have that same volume in the in the smaller markets, even Ottawa as well, which is a city of a million people, the capital, but investors are much more cautious in Ottawa, I would say, than in in the, the GTA. Mm-hmm. You've done quite a few podcasts before on the wholesaling side and you know the journey as well, which we covered today as well. But what I'm curious about is your investing portfolio and how you essentially scaled up that business as well, right? When we talked about that, we early on, we covered the duplex conversion that you did in Barry, we covered the Jane and Finch property, which you at some point, I think sold off or law school, right? But while your wholesaling business is kind of skyrocketing, flipping is doing pretty good as well. The first question is, were you still investing on investment properties during that time? Or did you focus all of your eggs into the wholesaling and the flipping business? My wife and I, we were buying rentals at the time, but a small number of them and more she was pushing, picking up stuff because I was more focused on doing one thing well. And this is something I saw on the flipping side, because again, wholesaling wasn't really a thing. I often saw people get into flipping. The people who were good at it, they'd flip a few properties, they make some money, and then they'd go on to whatever they thought was the next thing. They'd go develop a small townhouse complex, or they go do a new build or something like that, where people saw flipping as like a stepping stone. And my theory when I started flipping was, what if I could do this at volume, whereas all the people who are the best at this are leaving the industry or leaving flipping, let me be the best at flipping at volume, do something kind of a smaller scale, but but a lot of it. And I'd say philosophy in the wholesaling side, rather than doing a million different things, which you see investors doing, and they go an inch deep and a mile wide, I wanted to go an inch wide and a mile deep, focus and be the absolute best at wholesaling. And so that's what we focused on, but we were picking up a few rentals here and there, picked up a few uh, cottages as well, which... I think we do very, you know, we keep super host status. We have three cottages in Ontario. They do very well. And my wife takes care of those, runs it fully. And because of her, we're able to keep super host status. They make very good money, but we don't want to scale it too much because we haven't built another business around it. There's that side of it. So that was, you know, buying a cottage, big renovations on them because all of them were big renos. We actually bought one out in Bancroft, a little A-frame. You can follow her on Instagram. It's Annie the A-frame. It was... We paid $42,000 on the MLS for an A-frame with no septic. It was well. I think we ended up spending $250,000 renovating it. Um, and it, it, it's a really cute property on Airbnb. It's uh, the quintessential A-frame up in the evergreens. It's really pretty. Um, yeah, so, so we picked up some Airbnbs throughout the way. And then we started picking up more. We kind of thought a few years ago, we kind of thought Ottawa would be a really good market to be buying in and duplexing in which is difficult because Ottawa's construction numbers are actually, it's more expensive. Building in Ottawa is more expensive than the GTA. I think a lot of people go into work for government. There's a shortage of people in the trades. There is everywhere, but there's more of a shortage. So construction is really expensive in Ottawa. But we were getting some good deals on houses. Investors were a little more cautious out here. And we could put in SDUs, basement apartments. So we started buying some of those, more of those. And then we also were currently building two coach houses at the back of different properties. So Auto has allowed those for a while. And that, that's an interesting change because I actually like them better than the basement apartments. You have less of a leak issue. You can build them pretty small. And actually, we can build them for less than the coach house's cost to build. And the nice thing about them, too, is you can target different properties. So let's say we get a, a two-story house, which has a small basement. It might be less of a, less attractive as a, a basement apartment because the basement's small. But you can put a coach house out back 
And now you have the whole main house rented to one family. They'll pay a little bit of a premium for that. And then you have the smaller coach house in the back, which is kind of like a condo, but you know, you're not touching neighbors. You have a little yard of your own. It's like a tiny house in the backyard and it's legal. So I really like those. And we're building a couple of those in Ottawa right now. But yeah, so we've got properties a bit everywhere. We've got condo townhouse in Waterloo. We've got a condo townhouse in Brantford. We've got a 12 unit that we're converting to 17 units in Welland. We've got an eight unit in St. Catharines. We've got a 12 unit in Belleville, a 24 unit in Brockville, single family home in Brockville. We've got something in Smith Falls. And we've got a bunch of duplexes and single family stuff in Ottawa. Some east end of Ottawa, Rockland over there. So, and then we've got our cottages a little bit all over north of Barrie and in Brighton and yeah. Bancroft. So we're, mm-hmm. we're quite spread out geographically with our rental properties. We have about somewhere 26 to 30 properties. And when we finish the conversion in Welland, we'll be at a hundred units. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm interested in the multifamily space. You mentioned that you had a couple of larger multi apartments. Were those off market deals as well? And if so, were you using like your similar sort of strategies that you do for your other marketing of single family duplexes, triplexes on the bigger apartments as well? Yeah. Uh, we bought some of them privately. Uh, and yes, we have targeted uh, specific buildings and areas to buy them. So we are 12 unit in Welland. We bought that privately. Our eight unit in St. Catharines, we bought that privately. And the 12 unit in Belleville, we bought that privately. The 24 unit we bought in Brockville was on the MLS. Mm. And there was nine mm. offers and we won. Wow. And the interesting thing is it's, it's a property that's the average rent is 750 a unit, all two bedrooms, uh, sorry, 23, two bedrooms and one, one bedroom and market rents for the renovated units are 1550. So more than double. double. Yeah. 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 Um, So there's a lot of room as, you know, tenants choose to turn over what we did though. And this is a mix of, you know, we don't need to over lever. We made the seller two offers. They were asking 2.9 something million dollars, $3 million for 24 units. We made them an offer at asking conditional with traditional financing kind of terms. We also offered them 400 K over asking 3.4 million with us putting 550 K down as a down payment and them taking a VTB for the entire balance seller mm-hmm. vendor, take back mortgage seller, take back mortgage, basically seller financing. And so the, the terms were more important than the price of the purchase for us. We were willing to pay 400 K more to win the property and to get the sellers to take an 84% mortgage for us at 4% interest only for five years with mm-hmm. our option to renew for another five years at 6% interest only. So this was recent. We just closed at the beginning of July. Wow. And we knew the market was changing. Interest rates were changing. We didn't know where they'd be on our refinance. So we said, well, let's lock in 10 years of financing with the seller. Mm-hmm. That made me wow. a lot more comfortable buying that property. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. It's amazing. You, you think about what the risk factors are in the market and what you can do to mitigate them. One of the best ways is to get the seller to, to like take a fixed interest. Right? <laughs> and then suddenly interest rate don't matter as much in the environment. There'll be some point in the next 10 years that it makes sense for me to refinance and it's fully open. Mm. So I could refinance tomorrow or I could refinance in nine more years or almost 10 more years. Right. So, um, and they're interest only payments. So that'll help a lot with cash flow as we turn it over. Now, because we're not going to refinance, it means we're going to leave our capital in from renovations as we turn over units. Um, but we're fine with that. And, uh, you know, when we see the right time to refinance out with CMHC, we'll do that. So let me ask you this. So, so real estate doesn't pay a whole lot, like on the investing side, right? Like wholesaling and, and, and the active incomes in real estate are great, but investing cash flow kind of eroded in a lot of markets, right? So it's not necessarily a business where you can maybe justify having as many individuals on staff and on payroll and stuff like that, right? 
with your investing strategy of, you know, you got Brockville, St. Catharines, Welland, and a, a couple different markets and pretty like well spread out single family houses, apartment buildings and so on. Right. How did you guys go about scaling that business? How do you go about managing it even on a day to day? And I guess part of the solution might just be, you know, have an active business first, which you do the wholesaling business, right? Which can then supplement some of your real estate portfolio. But I'm just curious how you guys went about that. Yeah. Uh, so we use property managers for most of our properties. You know, we have one across Ottawa. The one who manages in Brockville also manages in Belleville. They're based out of Kingston. So they manage that. Those are the two towns they go. They're, they're too far towns and uh, we're, we're happy with them. So they're managing those ones for us. And then, you know, even our Brantford properties managed by the same manager as our Waterloo property because um, they cover that area. You know, they're close enough. So yeah, we do have a bit of a, we have a couple in Toronto condos that really easy. We self-manage, right? Doesn't take much to manage a condo. And then we have a different property manager in Niagara region who's doing our uh, Welland and St. Catharines property. So uh, we, we need a few different property managers for sure. And then team wise, I mean, a lot of it is done virtually. You do need to drive in and check on the properties every once in a while. I think you need someone from your team. And sometimes we have different people on our team, like one of our acquisition reps who might ask them to go, Hey, can you go take pictures of the updates of our 12 unit? You know, that kind of thing. Mm. But otherwise you're dealing with experienced construction people. So there's that side of it. As you said, the income is not amazing early on when you're investing, right? Rents grow, property values grow. The income gets a lot better that way, especially if you don't need to refinance and pull all of the capital out, you're going to be a little better off that way. So, but I would say the active income has helped us finance the ability to buy more properties and to fund our team to buy properties and manage them. The passive properties have been what's kind of built our wealth. Gotcha. By far. Mm -hmm. It's we make a lot more cash flow out of the business, but we've built a lot more wealth in the yeah. in owning the properties. Mm -hmm. Kind of a common scenario that I'm seeing with a lot of people, because ultimately, if you're scaling up fast, your cash flow probably hasn't caught up with where it needs to be to support the portfolio. And myself included, I find I'm just taking money from my active business and putting it into my real estate portfolio and, and, you know, rents are going up. So over time, it'll kind of naturally progress, right? Generally, at this point in the podcast, we'd like to ask your guests two questions. The first question is, where do you see yourself five years from now with regards to your various businesses? I'm trying to work less and we have a great team. So it's hard to say where the businesses are going to be. We're going to keep the wholesale business going. We're going to keep the rental business growing. I think what we're going to move to on the rental side is doing less of our deals on our own and more uh, multifamily stuff with joint venture partners. We're probably just going to be on our rental side. We don't we're always torn because it's nice to see people with, you know, a thousand units and all of that, but we're comfortable where we are. We've kind of hit a certain level where we're just uh, making sure we're stockpiling reserves, stockpiling cash, and probably kind of investing more passively elsewhere to kind of spread our risk about and make sure we never lose what we've built. So we're really trying to build kind of a moat around our investments. And so longer term, if we are going to keep buying multifamily, which we love the asset class and I think we're, we're good at it. We'll probably be doing it with more with partners to preserve our own cash. And then on the other side, it's, it's constantly a thought of uh, what's next. We have a really good team managing the business. I spend less than half my time in the wholesale business. Uh, I spend more time on the rental side than, than on the wholesale side. And so ideas for other businesses I want to start, but I'm always torn with, you know, I have a two-year-old daughter. I love spending time with her. It's a lot of fun. We just moved to a house on a little lake. So we're out in the water almost every day and you know, it, it's awesome. So it's hard for me to say where, where five years is going to go because I don't want to jump into a new business without making sure it's the right thing for me, but I don't want to overcommit. 
So I would say there's a good chance five years from now, I'm active in another business while continuing to own the about a hundred units and continuing to operate the wholesale business. That's kind of where mm-hmm. I see myself because I don't see myself not doing anything, um, yeah. but I just need to figure out how to do it without taking over my life because building the wholesale business was, you know, late nights. I pull all nighters. I hated accounting so much that when I finally got in the groove, I'm like, I'm not stopping till I'm done. And I just pull all nighters doing accounting. <laughs> Uh, you know, I'd work 80 hour weeks or more and, uh, I don't want to do that right now with a little kid. So trying to find that balance for sure. And I haven't been doing it for the last, I'd say two years. It's been a much more, you know, 40 hour a week kind of thing and much more concentrating on life outside of that. So uh, it's, how do I keep that going forwards without feeling like I'm not doing enough in life? (laughs) Yeah, Mm -hmm. sure. Okay. That's dope. Uh, the second question is for newer investors. Um, and you've been through a couple of kind of like micro cycles as well within the real estate market, right? And we're obviously in one today, but what do you see as being the biggest risk for a newer investor in today's market? I think the biggest risk is probably taking too long with the property. If your plan's going to take a long time to materialize and you don't know where you're going to be when it's done, that's risky. I think you need to concentrate on lining up your docs before you close on a property and getting it done quickly. I think speed is the name of the game. If you need to refi a property, get it done quickly. Probably the biggest a risk risk for somebody like in terms of what can cause them to lose their money or lose more than they have in it is private money is borrowing more. The biggest risk is borrowing, you know, promissory notes and then needing a refinance to pay it back. Cause on a lot of my properties, it'd be nice to get a refinance to borrow out my money. But if I can't refinance all of my money, that money's not borrowed at 10 or 12% on a promissory note or 14% or whatever people are paying on promissory notes. So needing the refinance and if it doesn't come in because the value's not there, that's very risky. If the value doesn't come in as high, maybe your loan's lower and your payment's lower, and then rents are still going up and your cash flow's better. That's great. But if you need the money out of it and you can't pay it otherwise with other cash, that's a very risky position to be in. And you'd be better off almost bringing in an equity partner because worst case, your equity partner can leave their capital in the deal. And when the market recovers or out of cash flow, you can pay them back that, that way. That might be a better position to be in. Definitely say that's one risk. Another one I'm seeing a lot is uh, I think Airbnb, some people are relying too much on one channel and that could be a risky thing because a lot of people are moving into Airbnb. You know, you see markets like Florida saturated with Airbnb, which was great when everyone was going down to Florida, working from home during COVID. Is that going to stay the case? I don't know. So that kind of thing can be risky as well, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of good points that you mentioned there um, about the just to chime in on that promissory note and, and over leveraging. You're absolutely right. But I find that, um, and you mentioned this earlier, Luke, like with people showing the amount of units they have, how how actively they're acquiring, a lot of that comes with debt and leverage, right? That's how you're able to scale the portfolio. And yes, it has paid off big time over the past like three, four, five, like decade, right? But now it's more riskier than ever to take high interest debt and not have a genuine exit strategy to pay back investors if things don't go right. So uh, really happy about that point up. Luke, it was great having you on. Honestly, your wealth of knowledge. I want to thank you because you've been super inspirational for me to get into wholesaling, whether you knew it or not. Seeing your success, seeing you be able to grow your business to what it is now has been like instrumental in me entering the space and, and eventually quitting my full-time job as well. And I'm sure you're going to continue crushing it as well in the multifamily space. Can't wait to see what you do next. If people want to follow your journey or connect with you, how could they best do so? You can follow me and my wife on Instagram. Uh, our multifamily page is uh, at Jess Luke Invest, J-E-S-S-L-U-C Invest, or my personal 
Instagram page is uh, at French Luke, French L-U-C. If anyone wants to sign up for a buyer's list, if they're not on it, you can go to offmarketbliss.ca, bliss, B-L-I-S-S, offmarketbliss.ca. Awesome. Those will all be in the show notes as well. Have you started raising capital or not yet for your, your multifamily? I have three properties, 15 units out of the portfolio is with 50-50 with joint venture partners. So I don't do it often and it really needs to be the right partner. So if somebody's interested right. in doing that, reach out to us and we can talk and we can see if it, it's something that might make sense on the right deal in the future. But um, I'm not looking to do a lot of it. I'm very cautious when we do it. So mm. for the right person, we can maybe uh, make something happen and uh, only for the right deals right now. Very careful. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Make sure to give Luke a follow and again, give this uh, podcast five-star review because it helps bring great guests like Luke out here. And it helps us to keep motivated to continue educating those out there and inspiring everyone. Until next time, everyone, invest smarter and live better. Take care all.